I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, it's Luke Burbank. This is Livewire. We're backstage at Revolution Hall, and we have a great show coming up for you. The theme is You Think You're So Smart. We've got David Shields and Caleb Powell here. We've got music from Martin Sexton. And we've got this guy, Martin Starr, from Silicon Valley and about a million other shows. Martin, who do you think, since we're talking about smarts on this show, who's the smartest person out there, in your opinion? Out there? In the universe? Yeah. Stephen Hawking. Who's second on the list? Is it Randy Quaid? Because that's what I was thinking is definitely number two. Uh, I'd go with Billy Billy Baldwin. Not Alec Baldwin. Billy. Not Daniel Baldwin. Correct. Billy. Okay. What, what do you feel Billy Baldwin has added to the world of science? And... Oh, if you have to ask that question, sir, you haven't lived. Okay. I stand uh, corrected and informed. This is just <laughs> the kind of knowledge that we're going <laughs> to yeah. drop on you guys. I've dropped a lot of knowledge here today, not to brag. Uh, and we're going to drop more of it right now when we head out on the stage. Drop it like it's hot. From PRI Public Radio International, it's... Livewire! Recorded in front of a live audience at Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon, it's Livewire with star of HBO's Silicon Valley, Martin Starr, authors David Shields and Caleb Powell, with music from Martin Sexton and our fabulous house band. And now, the host of Livewire, winner of the Mensa Award for Most Improved Member, three years in a row, Luke Burbank! Thank you, Jason Rouse. Thank you, everybody, for coming out to Revolution Hall here in Portland. We have a great show for you. Uh, we're theming the show, You Think You're So Smart. This hour, and we have a bunch of smart people coming out. We have two writers who don't agree on anything, and so their smart idea was to lock themselves in a cabin with a lot of beer in the woods and just argue for an entire weekend to see if that worked it out. <laughs> and spoiler alert, it didn't. <laughs> uh, I saw a headline in the newspaper that sort of screamed, not being so smart. Trend of do-it-yourself orthodontics Worries doctors. <laughs> this is from the article. An Everett Washington woman became a YouTube sensation this week after demonstrating how she was able to close the gap in her teeth in just a month using hair rubber bands purchased at a drugstore. 
Orthodontists worry that people performing dental procedures at home may lack the proper training <laughs> and that home dentistry can be complicated. <laughs> Seems like a pretty big understatement. Um, most of you, because you are uh, normal, you probably agree with these so-called dental experts. But I watched all of this lady's YouTube videos this week to try to study her method because I have the exact same gap in my teeth that she fixed with her rubber bands. There's actually a medical term for it. It's called diastema. And I got this, I think, from trying to jam as many toothpicks in between my front teeth as I could during very boring church services as a kid. I think I just wanted to feel something. <laughs> Got up to like five, by the way, not to brag. But. And so I've had this diastema my entire life, and I've always been a little self-conscious of it. Probably the main overriding memory of my childhood is posing for various family pictures and my mom hissing from behind me, smile with your teeth, and me not smiling with my teeth because I think I was kind of embarrassed. I thought I would do a little research this week uh, on diastema, and I found out some things. Uh, for instance, in Ghana, Namibia, and Nigeria, diastema is regarded as being attractive and a sign of fertility, <laughs> which is why I'm announcing this is my final live wire. <laughs> Be moving to Namibia where people get me. Um, in France, it's called dense du bonheur, which means lucky teeth. And in Australia, gapped front teeth in children are said to be a predictor of future wealth. Now, being gap-toothed and growing up in the family I grew up in, I'm here to tell you, it is not a predictor of future wealth <laughs> at all. Like, I was doing home dentistry long before this lady on YouTube was. I constructed pretend braces out of paper clips which I wore to school, hoping that they would think they were real braces. It was immediately sussed out that they were paper clips. I, I figured out that if I took a uh, piece of wintermint chiclet gum and wedged it in there, it totally erased the gap. So my plan for a while was to just do that every day for the rest of my life, which ironically would have cost way more than braces over the course of a lifetime. Um, the good news, I guess, is that my insecurity about my diastema was uh, quickly replaced by my insecurity about not having any armpit hair at age 16, <laughs> which was replaced by my insecurity about my combination skin, which was a combination of blackheads and whiteheads, uh, which was replaced by my insecurity about getting a pot belly in my 20s, which was replaced by my insecurity about my hair receding, which has been generally replaced by a malaise in which I notice that in every photograph I look more like my grandfather. <laughs> because this is the thing with life, right? Every something you're in seems like a big deal until another something comes along. <laughs> that is a way bigger deal. So what I'm trying to remember now is whatever I'm in, this is just the something of this moment. <laughs> There's another something around the corner that's going to make this something look like nothing. <laughs> and in a little bit of, of positive self-talk, I actually made a list of the sort of upside 
of having a diastema. I'm going to read this to myself if I'm ever feeling down. These are a few of the positives of my gap tooth situation. It's very easy for me to floss in between my front two teeth, and I can use yarn. Um, if I ever meet ex-NFL player Michael Strahan, we will have a lot to talk about. Uh, between Elvis Costello and the model Lauren Hutton, I have my next two Halloweens locked down for my costume. And uh, the last uh, bit of good news on this, if I'm ever in an accident and they have to wire my jaw shut, I can still get most food smaller than a meatball sub into my mouth. So I think we're all getting smarter already on this show. Our first guest, David Shields' entire adult life has been focused on his work. He's been a writing professor who's published 14 critically acclaimed books. Meanwhile, Caleb Powell's writing career, it didn't exactly take off maybe the way he'd hoped. He was too busy traveling overseas and learning languages, getting married, and playing the role of stay-at-home dad. Uh, the two guys have lived really different lives, lives that overlapped years ago when Caleb was one of David's writing students. They didn't particularly like each other, and they disagreed on almost everything. So what did they do? They reunited years later to go to a cabin for the weekend to hash it out once and for all. The result is the book and the documentary film, I Think You're Totally Wrong, A Quarrel. Please welcome David Shields and Caleb Powell to Livewire. Welcome to the show, you guys. What do you remember you. about the first time that you, you saw each other? Ooh. I remember Caleb came into my introductory writing class and had hair down to his belt buckle, <laughs> looked like a heavy metal musician, and was carrying a plastic gun. The moment I saw Caleb, I was completely terrified. Now, probably the first time that we met, I was in this class and there was 20 students and stared at the whole class and about three or four classes after, after he read my story, then he knew who he was and he didn't like me. But What did he not that, like about your story? I was pretentious and uh, I was a Jesus freak back when I took his first class. So. And David, that rubbed you wrong in some way? Or did you not like the, the work oh, he, that was being turned in by student Caleb Powell? Like, Did you immediately go... He excoriated it. Like that he, was a word I, that I taught Caleb. So he tries, <laughs> he, he tries to use it as often as he possibly can. But um, in any case, Caleb, I was no harder on Caleb than anyone else. I hope I'm hard on my own writing as well. But, but Caleb was full of certainty in the class and had all these very polemical opinions, but his actual work wasn't there yet. So I felt like that my role was to say you know, thanks for sharing, but the work is not that wonderful yet. It's full of a kind of, of certainty, and let's try and make the work better, and please put down your plastic gun. But, but for your part, Caleb, you weren't a great fan of David Shields' work either, right? Well, he's very solipsistic. There's another his, word. His, right? his, whole, his whole spiel is... Evil, you know, he always thinks evil is out there, and he never examines himself. David Shields' whole political shtick replicates Jonathan Franzen. In our book, you know, he, he Bush is evil. 
Rupert Murdoch and News Corps are evil. And I'm not saying that they're the angels of mercy and that they're making the world a better place, but there's a little bit more moral ambiguity, so he kind of falls in his own philosophical booby trap of accusing other people of what he himself is guilty of. Is this the core disagreement for the two of you, basically, which is that, David, you feel that, that Caleb is not, uh, I don't know, sort of intellectual enough, and, and Caleb, you feel David is overly intellectualizing things? Is that too simplistic? I mean, that's a part of it. I would say there's a wonderful line that I always love of William Butler Yeats, who said, out of our arguments with other people, we create politics. Out of our arguments with ourselves, we create poetry. And that's sort of what my whole artistic approach is, that I try to argue against myself, and I hope I've created good books, where, as Caleb, in my view, um, has basically has sort of an ongoing war with the world, which is the easiest thing in the world to do to point out the world's foibles. The That's more- what he wants to caricaturize myself as, and I don't look at myself like that at all. Well, let me ask this. Whose idea was it to just go to a cabin to try to work this out? Like, David, did you call him up and go, hey, I'm that professor you didn't like a whole lot. Let's go on a trip. How did this book come about? It was definitely, I think it was there my idea. There are many idea. catalysts, many catalysts. But basically, I've always have been a fan of the form from, from Plato and Socrates arguing in the Plato dialogues many millennia ago to things like my dinner with Andre, car talk, sideways, <laughs> the trip. It's a form I've always have loved, two psyches arguing for their philosophical lives. And I wanted to try and do a book like that. And I tried a bunch of other people that I couldn't get traction with. <laughs> this, this great book, by the way, we're talking to David Shields and Caleb Powell. The, uh, the book is, I think you're totally wrong, A Quarrel. I highly recommend it for folks. Also, there's a documentary film uh, that James Franco uh, uh, produced Uh, which mirrors the book in certain ways. And I want to play a clip. David, this is you in your car about to get to Caleb's house. And you're sort of, this is right at the beginning of the film, and you're just kind of setting up what the dynamic is. Let's listen to this. I'm honestly kind of scared in the sense that, to me, he's a really strange guy. There's something, to me, sort of implicitly sociopathic about him. And I really, I mean, there's part of me that feels there's a one in a thousand chance Caleb will kill me. I swear to God. To me, he's an unusual guy. And there's something violent about him. I don't know if it's just emotionally violent or psychologically violent or physically violent. He's a somewhat physically imposing fellow. And he, at some level, he scares me. And I guess I believe in this idea, you know, of placing myself in harm's way. I believe in that as part of a writing project. So here I am literally placing myself in harm's way. So that was the setup. (laughs) When you guys actually went out to the wilderness, essentially, the first time, were you guys actually trying to hear each other or just win the argument? I I think one of the key elements of a book is is this this scene where we talk about uh, Nichols and Baker's a few... Human Smoke, which is a book where he tries to juxtapose World War II as an immoral 
war on the Allies' part. It counters the narrative of what we all think of World War II. And Nicholson Baker does a, Nicholson Baker does a very good job of that. Through this, I mean, I, I, I think he's correctly pointed to my own philosophical, judgmental, the way I look at the world politically as black and white. And I've retreated from that. There's a lot of gray areas in any position anyone holds. And I think I would benefit from incorporating that into my art. Even though you guys both look like Ben Kingsley, you're learning from each other, and I think that's amazing. Caleb Powell and David Shields, ladies and gentlemen. That was David Shields and Caleb Powell. Their book is I Think You're Totally Wrong, A Quarrel, and you are listening to Livewire. The only radio show with a degree in 18th century Eastern European agrarian socialism. Thank God for the minor in communications. Hey, if you're going to be in the Portland area March 14th, come to our next live taping here at Revolution Hall. Our guests include Seinfeld writer Peter Melman, astrophysicist dubbed the astronomical Indiana Jones, Professor Sarah Seeger, top chef runner-up Gregory Gorday, and others. That's March 14th at Revolution Hall. Tickets and more information at livewireradio.org. We'll be right back, you guys. Hey, it's Luke. And look, you may have forgotten your New Year's resolution by now, but our sponsor, Ergo Depot, has a new one for you, and it is the easiest one ever. Sit less. How's that for an achievable goal? It's not like run a marathon or bench 250. In fact, there's no benching of any kind. You just need to move a little more. And maybe think about getting a swanky new desk like the Jarvis, which morphs itself into a standing desk with just the touch of a button. Visit ErgoDepot.com and they'll set you up for goal-setting success. Now we do need to talk about your personality. Welcome back to Live Wire from PRI. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. Coming to you live from Revolution Hall here in Portland, Oregon. This hour, our theme is You Think You're So Smart, which actually has our Livewire staff remembering sometimes when maybe they were not the sharpest knives in the drawer. This is the kind of thing that most people would keep to themselves, but our writers have a lot of emotional issues that play themselves out through oversharing. Um, so here we go. Please welcome Alex Falcone, Courtney Hommeister, Jason Rouse, and Sean McGrath. First up... Our announcer, Jason Rouse. Yeah, hey, Luke. Um, when I was 17, my mother asked me one day to, if I would call a carpet cleaning service to come over. We, uh, about a month before, she had finally gotten her dream. She had installed brand new carpets throughout the house, wall to wall. And um, over the course of a month, we had some minor stains, including a large cranberry juice stain that I made earlier that morning. And she asked me to call, and I, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to do her one better. I'm going to save her some money. I know how to treat a carpet, thank you. So armed with a bucket of water, a sponge, and a bottle of bleach, I took to the brand new beige carpet, seven good size uh, stains around the house, living room, family room, entryway, dining room, my bedroom, her bedroom. Um, she cried for a couple days <laughs> after that. Um, I should say, though, the cranberry juice stain came out. Did you explain to her that you, you were just stonewashing the carpet? That was very in style in the 80s. 
I I didn't. I was <laughs> I was hiding for my very life. Yeah, I was I've never seen a small woman get so enraged at at the loss of what I know now was a pretty spendy expenditure. So all right, well, Jason Rouse, lesson learned. Next up, it's our own Sean McGrath with a tale of doing something not so smart. Uh, when I was six, I went to dinner at some family friends, and uh, I was a like terribly picky eater. Like if it wasn't a grilled cheese sandwich, I hated it. And the first course was the salad. And so what I would do is um, I would take the salad in my hand and then drop it on the floor for the dog, this little Yorkie terrier who would come by and gobble it up. And I was like, wow, I'm a genius. This is going to work out great. And the second course was ravioli, spinach ravioli. Sounds good right now, but as a six-year-old, it was death. And so I took it in my hand and I dropped it on the floor to the whole plate of spinach ravioli. And then I look over and I see that they put the Yorkie behind the baby gate in the kitchen. And I look down and sure enough, mound of ravioli underneath my chair. I was not invited back to that house. I did something kind of like that. I, I was spending over at someone's house when I was a kid. And I don't know why his mother let us do this, but we were sitting in these beds watching TV in this kid's bedroom and she brought us food. She brought us pork and beans and the bed I was on had like a drawer at the base of the bed, which had socks and underwear and stuff, and it was open. And I didn't like pork and beans. I yeah. didn't like hot dogs. So I just dumped the plate into yeah. the sock drawer and then just closed it and went home. When you're a kid, if you can't see it, it doesn't exist. Yeah, so I was a lot worse. Don't feel bad, Sean McGrath. Thank you. I feel better now. All right. That's our segment that we like to call... The smartest writing staff in public radio. Sean McGrath, Courtney Heimeister, Alex Falcone, and Jason Rouse. <laughs> Playing country, soul, gospel, and rock, our musical guest tonight, Martin Sexton, doesn't like to be fenced into any one genre, unless he's literally playing the song Don't Fence Me In, which means he's playing country music. The New York Times said his music amplifies the sound of the ordinary heart his latest record, his 11th, is called Mixtape of the Open Road. Please welcome Martin Sexton to Livewire. Thank you so much, Luke. Good evening, everybody. Everybody good? Mm, I'm so happy to be here. My little boy is six years old now. He said, Daddy, before you go out on tour, here, take this little Lego man. This is me. Put me on your dashboard. You see my cockies on the table. My traveling boots out on the floor. That you peeking around the corner. Looking at my bags packed by the door. And while I have to say goodbye, when I come home at your surprise, yeah, we're gonna drive your mother crazy. And now the grass will grow, and the wheels may change direction. But child, I need you to know that this love I have is always set in stone, set in stone. And when I'm gone, if you hear mama cry And you hear angry shouting on the phone Just remember, child, me I try To keep 
keep our house a happy home And while we may fuss and fight Mom and I are gonna be alright Yeah, we'll be making up till Sunday morning And now the storms may blow But those clouds make way for sunshine Child, we need you to know This love we share is always set in stone in stone Even if I'm miles and miles away Past Pluto or the Milky Way You'll never be alone My love is set in stone Your love give me my sense of direction Child, we need you to know When I'm far away from home you never really be alone Cause this love we got is set in stone Thank you so much. That was Martin Sexton right here on Livewire. His latest album is Mixtape of the Open Road. You are listening to Livewire, sponsored in part by New Belgium Brewing, where authentic Belgian beers, environmental stewardship, and social responsibility all live under one roof. I know that sounds like a lot but it's a really big roof. More information at newbelgium.com. All right, this is Livewire Radio. Next up, actor Martin Starr is well-known for playing hyper-intelligent, hyper-deadpan characters, characters who would probably mock me for saying something as stupid as hyper-deadpan. You might know him as Bill Haverchuk from Freaks and Geeks or Roman from Party Down or the guy whose ability to grow a beard on command basically carried the movie Knocked Up. He's also in the amazing HBO show Silicon Valley and the new film Amira and Sam. Please welcome Martin Starr to Livewire. That was the coolest intro music I'll ever have in my entire life. That was pretty good. That's a Livewire band, everybody. I also have diastema, if we're talking about stuff. Yeah, did any of that resonate with you? Oh, yeah. I didn't do the toothpick thing, but I have diastema. Yeah. I feel like that's, start, that's sounding like a, 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 a drug commercial. Do you suffer from diastema? Yes. Um, I, like many of the people probably here in the audience and listening out there in the uh, radio audience, I was a huge fan of the show Freaks and Geeks. Thank you. And on that show, you played Bill uh, Haverchuk, who was really a geek among geeks. Uh, you know, this show was created by Judd Apatow, and it launched a bunch of careers. And Yours. Paul Feig. Yeah, and Paul Feig. And it, it launched, you know, you and Seth Rogen, James Franco, Jason Siegel, a bunch of other people. When you were making the show, even though you were pretty young at the time, did it feel like something special was happening? 
I was like, I know what's going to happen here with the rest of our lives. Uh, no, we just, you know, we went out to make something that we all cared about. And, you know, we've been very fortunate to all continue to do what we love to do. But, I mean, do you feel, like, let's talk about your career. Had you not gotten that role on Freaks and Geeks, do you think you would still be afforded all the opportunities you've had? I'd be a carpenter somewhere. <clears throat> I'd probably be a, um, I'd probably be a veterinarian, to be honest. That would be your... To melt hearts in the audience. <laughs> you know, I'd be saving sick puppies. Um, but that, that was my passion, I think, when I was... There it is. Uh, I was, that's, that was something that I thought I would probably be when I was a kid. Are there ever times when you're on a set or even doing a radio show where you're thinking, I wish I would have gone veterinarian? <laughs> nope. There's a scene in uh, Freaks and Geeks that has become kind of famous where your character is, after school, he's making his snack and he's just watching TV and, uh, he, you know, his guy's a real outcast, but you see him in this world that is his little cocoon of happiness. I think that resonated with so many people. But then I heard you on Mark Maron's podcast and you said that what you were laughing at was just Judd Apatow saying horribly dirty jokes right off a camera Judd and one of our writers oh, I forget his name now so now I'm a real a-hole but um, the, I mean it was a, it was a number of people just saying the dirtiest things I mean I was 16 so anything with like a mildly bad word in it made me laugh so they just went off with like the worst things they could possibly say to each other which to a 16 year old was like it was mind-blowing it was a, like a mind-blowing experience <laughs> Do people come up to you and talk about that scene a lot? Nope. Really? <laughs> I don't go out much. People email you with questions about that scene? I don't know how they get my email address, but nope. That's not the answer I was looking for, Martin. <laughs> I mean, today it's happened once. <laughs> All right, fair point. But seriously, can you guys follow me around? Because that was really the coolest intro music I will ever have. It really goes to your head after a while. It like, does. I really wanted to swagger. It just makes you want to swing your hips when you walk out. Um, so let's talk about another show that you were in that uh, is really incredible, too. The show is Party Down. Wow. All right. And Those people hope we're still making a movie. I can't tell you whether it is or isn't happening. I'm sorry. <clears throat> I hope it does, but there's no real definitive answer here. I'm sorry. I'm very sorry. Those very happy, excited people are a lot less excited right now. That wasn't my intention. <clears throat> I, for people that don't know your, your character, Roman, it, the show is about a bunch of caterers who are all trying to be actors and writers and different things. And... Your character, Roman, is, uh, 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 wants to be a writer, but is mainly focused on telling everybody else that their, all of their pop, pop culture instincts are wrong. We have a clip. Let's listen. This is Roman from oh, Party yeah. Down. I'm Roman. I'm a writer. I write movies and, and books. I have a blog. So what kind of stuff are you into? I mean, what I really like is dragons. Dragons? Mm -hmm. Dragons. Dragons are fantasy. If there's magical talismans, or a magic sword, or wizards, or f 
crazy, not real animals, all these basic things that break the laws of reality, that's all fantasy. Yep. I'm into hard sci-fi. Fantasy is bull Boom. Yeah. How much of that guy is actually like in you? Uh, not, not a lot. I'm, I'm very cynical, but like that, that guy's not me at all. Um, that was an awkward episode. That was like, Stars was like, we want more boobs in the show. So, Stars said that? Yeah. Stars was like, we want to, you know, we're cable, man. Give us the nipples. So we had an episode of like porn stars. It was like real awkward sometimes. And it was, a, you know, an interesting episode to be a part of. So the, the network, in this case, Stars, which I feel like, because I was such a fan of Party Down and I was always telling people, you got to watch this show, Party Down. They'd say, what is it on? I'd say Stars. And they would go, is that when a you thing? you say you would like always tell people that, what does that mean? Like once a day. <laughs> <laughs> like today I told someone. Fair enough. Um, My man. Good callback. <laughs> uh... So Star says we need more boobs in Party Down, and then you—I yeah. mean, not you, but the producers and we writers delivered. have to actually make that happen. Yeah, we made boobs out of crochet. <laughs> we delivered them that day. Um, we're talking to Martin Starr from Silicon Valley and Party Down, and uh, a new movie I want to talk about in a minute called Amira and Sam. This is Live Wire Radio, by the way. Uh, you were raised Buddhist. Yeah. And. I heard you say on that same Mark Maron interview that the idea behind, uh, you know, the practice of Buddhism is to sort of seek world peace on a daily basis. How, how are you doing that through your writing and your acting? Um, I mean, for me, it's through allowing people to connect with something human that I hopefully um, exhibit in, in the characters that I portray and the, and the stuff that I write. Um, hopefully bring, bringing people joy or at least um, some awareness. I mean, there are certainly very negative sides to you know, most humans and most of the characters that I've brought to life. Um, but those things are innate in all people and those are things that we should all be aware of anyway. Did I go too complex with this? Um, this is public radio. These, it's these not complex people are ready enough. for it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, hopefully it brings some semblance of joy or a good conversation out of something that I've done. Well, I mean, is that in your mind somewhere when you're looking at a role, when no. you're writing something? I, I like to be challenged when I'm looking at something that I'm, you know, potentially going to be a part of. Um, so that means something to me, but that's to challenge myself on a creative level. I trust my own instincts to bring something to life in a way that hopefully affects other people. Uh, did you once essentially steal a dog, and is that against the Buddhist principle? No, I bought it off a homeless man for five dollars, who who stole it. He stole it. I did not. I paid good, hard-earned child money. Okay. I was a young child who took money from my father. Technically, it was adult money, but in the hands of a child, and I gave it to another adult. Okay. And I took a dog. But then you had to. But then you didn't even get to keep the dog. It was a real. It was bad. I should have been able to keep the dog at least. That'd make it a happy story. Here's another unhappy story. Your mom is an actor, and she was cast 
in Silicon Valley, the HBO show you're on. <laughs> but this, this is going to be a sad story as well. Well, that's why <laughs> I transitioned with speaking of a sad story. Uh, Your mom is also an actor, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was also cast on Silicon Valley, the show you're She's on. She's been on, on all three of the shows that have been big pinnacles of my career and, and, and my life creatively. Um, she was on Freaks and Geeks. She was on Party Down. And then she was cast on Silicon Valley, but not yet used in an episode. They shot scenes with her, but they haven't put them into anything. <laughs> Are you the one who has to tell your mom that her scene did not make the final cut? Yeah, I told her, but I didn't want to be that person. <laughs> uh, let's talk about this uh, film, Amira and Sam. Uh, that you're in, you are the romantic lead in this film. You're not playing anybody who is a freak or a geek or a caterer. No. Was it fun for you to get to sort of do something that's not maybe what you're best known for? Sure. I guess I never think about it like that because everything that I get to do is a new, is a foray into something new for me. So this was just another opportunity. But um, but yeah, this was this was definitely a. a a lot of new tools were used in, in working on this movie. Uh, when does it come out? When can people see it? It's out on VOD now. And that means people can go on Netflix? They can go on various... I don't know if it's on Netflix, but it's definitely like on iTunes and um, you know, cable providers. Check your local cable provider. That's a hell of a sales pitch. Yeah, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm really proud of the movie. I know that last uh, sentence didn't sell it, but this should. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, very, I'm very proud of the movie. I think it has a very uh, important message that isn't heard, and there's a lot of value, I think, in, in the way that we portray Muslim culture and, and, and people, and, um, I mean, a lot, and veterans, and, and uh, the love story, I think, is very, very sweet. But there's so much, I think, like politically that's valuable about it. And so for me, it was really, it was very cool to be a part of something that I can be so proud of. All right, Martin Starr, you are, you are well known for playing very intelligent characters. This whole show is about, uh, you know, smarts. So we thought we would put you to the test. You, you may have heard. I have to go we, to the bathroom. I'll be back in, how long is this going to take? You already failed. <laughs> you may have heard that we only use 10% of our brain, but apparently they're now saying that that is a myth, that we really use the whole entire brain all at once. So we wanted to test this theory out with you, Martin Starr. Here we go. Okay. So here is what the plan is. Uh, we are going to uh, test your cerebellum, which controls balance, by having you sit on a yoga ball for this test. Thank you. And then we're also going to test your brain stem, which controls digestion. We were going to have you eat these uh, jacked Doritos chips, which we sent someone to the store for, but you're, the only thing that you didn't want to do was Eat those Doritos. Why is that, Martin Starr? All those chemicals, man? What are you, crazy? <clears throat> I'm sure they're delicious. By okay. the way, this is no real test of balance. <clears throat> Just like FYI. Stop. Because <laughs> I, I don't mean to like discount your entire theory here. but I want to I narrate for the radio <laughs> listeners. Famous actor Martin Starr is sitting cockily atop a yoga ball here in <laughs> Revolution Hall telling us that it's not even a challenge for you in the balance bar. But listen to the rest of the test. Okay. So we're going to have you eat. You brought your own food. What is it, pumpkin seeds or something? I didn't know this was happening, but I happen to have pumpkin seeds on Okay. Me. You're going to eat the pumpkin seeds, and then we're going to also ask you to try to remember stuff while answering some sort of SAT-style questions. You ready to do this, Star? Yeah. Okay. He's bouncing up and down. 
He's got the pumpkin seeds in his mouth. Let's begin the test. First, we're going to test your memory. I am going to give you a list of borderline unwatchable Adam Sandler films. Are there any other? You have to remember them at the end of the test and repeat them back to me, okay? I'm pretty sure I know them all already. Okay. First one is uh, Jack and Jill. Uh-huh. Second one is Grown Ups 2. Uh-huh. The third one is Just Go With It, which I have to be honest with you was not that terrible. I saw it on a plane. I may have cried. So are we not counting that one? No, no, it's still, it's still in there. Okay, so that's the memory test. Hold that in Jack your brain, Jack and Jill. Star. Uh, wait, what was the second one? <laughs> your oh, yoga grown, ball pride grown went ups before destruction. Grown Ups 2, and then the third one we don't count because you didn't think that one was one. Okay, hold on. All right, here we go. We're going to test your problem solving. Bouncing atop a yoga ball, eating pumpkin seeds, engaging all parts of your brain. Uh Answer this SAT question, Martin Starr. There is no doubt that Larry is a blank. He excels at telling stories that fascinate his listeners. Is Larry A, a braggart, B, a prevaricator, or C, a raconteur? No help from the audience. You're not on yoga balls, so shut up. Um, Wait, can you ask me again? Yep. Larry, there is no doubt that Larry is a something. He excels at telling stories that fascinate his listeners. Is Larry A, a braggart, B, a prevaricator, or C, a raconteur? Um, prevaricator? No, Absolutely it's, it's wrong, a raconteur, Star. isn't it? It's raconteur. Yeah. I feel like it's either the yoga ball or the I didn't know what prevaricator was. I haven't heard it in a long time. I haven't defined it. Is it if possible my, you knew... Is it possible you knew? I would have gone with raconteur, but I was like, I don't know what prevaricator is. Let's just do that. You guys know all the big words. <laughs> so Should you're I keep using bouncing? this. I'm sorry. Oh, no, I'm fine. So Jack and Jill and Grown Ups 2, is that what we're back to? No. <laughs> like four more questions. Oh, okay. Here we go. Let's do it. You've, you've already failed the first direct question, and yeah. I feel like you're going to fail on the memory one. Now we're going to test you. your thinking, okay? Oh, no, I've already done it. The memory one, I've already. <laughs> keep going, keep going. We'll okay. do it again. I'm running the test, Martin. We're going to test your thinking. Consider and answer the following question while bouncing on a yoga ball and eating pumpkin seeds. What, if any, impact do you think changing marijuana laws will have on the United States' mass incarceration problem? Uh, Well, we won't have as many uh, drug-related inmates. I think think weed, um, unfortunately, is over. um, uh, People are, you know. I mean, you guys already know. Um... The, the laws are far too strict and people are locked up for doing things that should have been legal. I mean, Mother Nature put this here for a reason. Come on. Who are, who are we playing with? All right. In the middle of that answer, I was tempted to say, I rest my case. But, okay. Aha, but I came around. You did. You brought it around. Good job. All right. One more. One more before we revisit. Oh, I thought you had many more. There's one more and then we'll revisit the did work. Did we run out of time? Uh, we ran out of time a while ago. Okay. We're going to test your feeling now. Total engagement for Martin Starr, bouncing on a yoga ball, eating pumpkin seeds here on the stage, live wire radio. Martin, I love you, but I'm not in love with you. How does that make you feel? It makes me feel pretty good. Because it would be really inappropriate if you were in love with me. We've only known each other a short while, and I understand that your love is probably based on things that are superficial, but I'm okay with that. Wow. That, that was an answer only the Buddha would give. 
All right, and back to the memory portion, Martin Starr. At the beginning of this test, Jack we and asked Jill you. and Grown Ups too. The other one you said didn't count, so we're not going to count that one. I stopped remembering ah. that one a long time ago. For the record, it was just go with it, but that's a good yeah. point. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Martin Starr using his entire brain. Martin Starr, thanks for being on Livewire. Thank you. That was Silicon Valley's Martin Starr, and you are listening to Live Wire, the only radio show to score a perfect 1,600 on our SATs. The year after, they made it worth 2,400 points. Take that, Radio Lab. You know, we're talking about smarts tonight, and uh, we've been doing a lot of research on the brain this week, and uh, we've discovered that there are, in fact, a lot of myths out there and here to help us sort brain fact from brain fiction is our head writer, Courtney Hameister. Hey, Luke. All right, Court, you have a uh, few myths that you're going to uh, debunk for I'm debunking. I'm yeah, here to debunk. That's a weird word, debunk. I know. And I'm really hoping you're not teasing about the first one because it gives hope to my soul. Uh-huh. Uh, is is it a myth that drinking beer kills brain cells? That is a myth. You're welcome, Earth. <laughs> um, no, it, it is a myth. Um, so the, uh, there was a researcher named Greta Jensen. I would imagine that uh, she enjoyed a glass of Pinot Noir periodically. And she possibly wanted to prove that, uh, that drinking didn't kill brain cells. And so she actually really painstakingly counted neurons. And neurons are the cells that transmit nerve impulses in the brain. And, uh, in, and she counted them in alcoholics and non-alcoholics brains. And she, there was no discernible difference between the number. Like, we, I think we start with something like 100 billion neurons. And somehow she counted them. And so it doesn't actually kill brain cells. So what you're saying is drinking is good for the brain? Um, <laughs> It's actually not good for the brain. Um, so what happens is that it, it can't actually damage the neurons. And so uh, it, you have slightly more difficulty uh, like making connections between ideas and, and forming new memories. So your neurons aren't dead. They're, kind of, they're like limping a little bit like they've been through a really difficult rugby match. But the good news is you can continue drinking as much as you've been drinking, and you're not going to kill brain cells. You can keep them, but you just may forget why you kept them and where you left them. And they will silently resent you over the course of a lifetime. Exactly. (laughs) Next assumption that we're going to take on is the assumption that we need our whole entire brain. We do not need our whole entire brain to survive. Here's the thing, actually. Some people can be president two (laughs) times without it. Some people can be vice president. (laughs) Um, Yes. Um, With only half a brain. I am talking about, of course, FDR. It'd be great if I was talking about uh, Millard Fillmore. Just going back to your old president. Uh, <laughs> wait, we don't need our entire like physical brain. We don't need the entire thing. You actually thing? don't need the entire thing. There is a there is a surgery that it has been performed hundreds of times called a hemispherectomy, and that is removing half of the brain. It's either the left side or the right side, whichever side there's the bigger problem with. It, it's only done when uh, it, in very very extreme cases of people who have seizures. Um, a lot of times people have epilepsy, and they need to remove it but it's amazing because they keep their memories and they keep generally they keep their personality intact so how do you heal from having 
a hemispherectomy? Um, well, the brain has this really cool thing. Mo usually there's more of this in kids than adults, but it's called neuroplasticity. And what happens with neuroplasticity is that the undamaged sections of the brain actually rearrange themselves to start to do the jobs of the areas that have died. Wow. So, yeah. So, and, and the, the first time that we sort of knew that neuroplasticity existed probably was um, with this guy, Phineas Gage, who you all may have heard of. He's sort of an internet celebrity now from the 1850s. He was a railroad worker, and he had a giant iron pole shoved through his left eye and through his frontal lobe and the left side of his brain, and he survived. And um, the only thing was that his friend said that he kind of turned into a jerk. Um, and I just want to say to my friends... When I get a giant pole shoved through my eye and my brain, I'm going to ask you to let me be a jerk about it yeah. for a minute. Just let me get used to the pole. Yeah. That's all I want to say to Phineas's friends who are all dead. Yeah. Let him be a jerk for a minute. He's annoyed. I don't know <laughs> why, this, why this comes to mind for me, but it's like when people say, well, that's better than like a you know, hot needle in your eye. I don't really know why the temperature of the needle matters. <laughs> Nobody's ever been like, ah, ah, oh, you know, that's room temperature. That's fine. Leave that in. I, exactly. Kind of, sort of related to that. Okay, this next one. This, this one reads like a fact. Right. And so I can't see how it could be a myth, which is we live in the present, right? That is what's happening. That is not a myth, right? Total myth. You're not living in the present. I'm not living in the present. No one is. Slow down, Morpheus. Right? Yeah, I hope you've all smoked some weed because this is going to sound good. But no, so, so think about, um, it's, this is about the speed of perception, right? So, so as soon as you perceive something, when you are perceiving it, let's, let's, well, let's talk about a clap, right? So if you see someone clapping in front of you, your, your ears and your eyes actually perceive things. Th that information travels at different speeds to the brain. But what your brain does is this really cool thing. It kind of papers over the differences and it syncs it up for you. So you perceive those things as this happening at the same time, but that takes time for your brain to figure out. So you think that you're living in the present when in actuality we're all living about 13 milliseconds in the past because our perception is, is late, There's right? a slight delay. Right, so if your friends say, tell you to stop living in the past, you can say to them, I literally cannot stop living in the past. And neither can you. So shut up about it. That's why I went on his Facebook page night after night. <laughs> yes. Unable to not live in the You're past. You're unable, yeah, to get out of there. I mean, I think in the, the one benefit to this could be that if you're fast enough... Mm -hmm. If, you're, if you can beat 13 milliseconds, you could actually conceivably fix a gaffe before it's perceived by anyone. I've unless... done that hundreds of times just during this show. <laughs> exactly, and people Nobody don't know. Nobody realizes it. Unless, though, unless it's been Instagrammed or Vined or you're on the Academy Awards and you're John Travolta. <laughs> then it's completely impossible. Well, come over. Let me touch your face. <laughs> Courtney Hommeister, ladies and Thank gentlemen. Thank you. Brain is debunked. That was a heck of an hour. That was a heck of an hour, Jason Rouse. We yeah. think we all got a little bit smarter there. What do you think you learned? Well, I'm, <clears throat> I'm freaked out. If you can take out half of my brain and I'm still the same person, why do I have all this brain? Are you and smoking? I'm, just, I'm, not, I'm not happy about this knowledge, and I wish that we didn't. I don't think we should do these kind of studies anymore because I'm freaked out and I want some more Doritos. Have you been smoking weed with the band again? I had a little bit. It was my turn to bring it. 
Well, I learned something. I had no idea that Doritos had chemicals in them. So thank you, Martin Starr, for filling us in. Thank you, everybody. We've had a great time. That's our show. We'll see you all next week. Our thanks to our guests, David Shields and Caleb Powell, Martin Starr and Martin Sexton. This show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, and Ergo Depot. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Robin Tenenbaum is the executive producer and co-creator of Livewire. Courtney Hameister is our head writer and producer. Jim Brunberg is producer and member of our house band along with Jonathan Newsom and Dave Jorgensen. Jason Rouse is our associate producer and part of our writing team along with Alex Falcone, Sean McGrath, and this week guest writer Joanne Schinderly. Graham Nystrom is our technical director, house sound by D. Neil Blake, lighting by Jillian Tabler. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council, Meyer Memorial Trust, the Oregon Arts Commission, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, the Maybell Clark McDonald Fund, the Oregon Community Foundation, Work for Art, the Multnomah County Cultural Coalition, and listeners like you find beautiful people. For more information about our show or how to become a member of LiveWire, visit LiveWireRadio.org. You can download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and find us on Twitter and Facebook at LiveWire Radio. I'm Luke Burbank, and we'll see you next week. Public Radio International. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.